Well, again, good morning. Welcome to worship today. This week, as we continue our journey through our series, Unsung Heroes, Part 2, where we are looking at lesser-known characters in Scripture and the great things that God did through them, we find ourselves in the book of Judges and in chapter 3 in particular. Now, the time of the Judges was an interesting time in the history of Israel. Moses was gone, and Joshua has died in the very beginning of the book, and so they lack a centralized leadership. It is God's desire that he be their central leadership figure, but the people struggled to follow him. They struggled to follow, they struggled to follow Moses and Joshua as well, but this isn't such a huge surprise. But there seems to be a, a deeper, more pronounced struggle to follow God without some human leader as his mouthpiece. The people of Israel are in Canaan now, the land that, that they had been promised. The tribes have broken off into their different groups and are occupying like different sections of land. It is, it is each tribe's responsibility to drive out the enemy from their land, the lands that, that they were given, so that they would not be tempted away from their beliefs in Yahweh, in, in God. Some do this well, and some do not. And what ends up happening is the people of Israel fall from their worship of the one true God and they start to worship the idols, the gods of the people around them. In anger, God lets other nations come and conquer them and oppress them. And then, in their hardship, the people of Israel realize that they have abandoned the God of their fathers and they turn back to him, repenting and asking for deliverance from their current oppression. God hears their cry and sends to them a judge, a leader, someone to help deliver them from their current hardship. The judge succeeds. There is peace for a time. And then the people of Israel fall back into worshiping their idols and gods again, and the cycle continues. Sounds kind of like us, doesn't it? We can get distracted by life around us and the idols of our hearts and our neighbors and neglect the true God and the way our worship of earthly things manifests in our lives is not pleasant. It tears us down, and we recognize that we aren't living the life that God hoped for us. We're living a life making choices that are hurting our God. And so we repent, and, and God is always gracious and merciful and forgives us, and the cycle continues. Now, the judges are a host of pretty colorful characters. And the one we find in Judges 3, verses 12 to 15, is one of the most colorful and possibly one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture. If you brought your Bible with you this morning, I encourage you to follow along. If you didn't bring a Bible but want one, there should be one in the pew in front of you, or you are welcome to follow along as the words will be on the screen. We read the word of the Lord together this morning. Judges chapter 3, verses 12 to 15. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And before they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer. Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. This ends our reading this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. 
God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. I pray this in your name. Amen. Daniel Eugene Rudiger was the third of 14 children. He was born in Joliet, Illinois, where he grew up with his German-American family. Daniel did not excel at school, particularly due to his dyslexia. Out of high school, he joined the U.S. Navy, and two years later, after his time was up, he worked in a power plant for another two years. Daniel applied to go to college at Notre Dame and was rejected because of his poor school grades. He enrolled at nearby Holy Cross College, and after two years, he finally got into Notre Dame after his fourth application was accepted. Daniel Rudiger, or Rudiger, I don't know, I'm bad with names, had a, so well done, Katie, I, yeah, it is a thing, <laughs> had a hard time fitting in. He didn't feel like, like he belonged, he didn't feel like he was good enough. He couldn't keep up with the other kids in school. The Navy didn't really work out. He, he tried to get into Notre Dame, a place where he had always dreamed of playing football, but he was short and, and he was small and his grades were terrible. And so by the time he finally got into school, he was pretty old for a college student. He didn't know where he belonged. He didn't know how he fit in. He had a dream. He had hopes, but was told time and time again that it was time to lower his expectations. That he just wasn't smart enough, or talented enough, or the right size to accomplish what he hoped to accomplish. Daniel just didn't fit in. Much like the hero in our story this morning, Ehud. Ehud, as our text tells us, was a left-handed man. Now, there was a stigma against left-handed men in the Bible. They were not looked upon favorably. If you were to read what we translate as left-handed in this text in the original language, we would see that the literal words are that he was bound or like restricted in his right hand. Now, the right hand in biblical times had significant meaning. The right hand was a warrior's greatest asset. It was the sword arm symbolic of military strength and capability. Furthermore, to be placed at someone's right hand was to be placed in a position of honor. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10, we read, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. These are wonderful promises from God to his people, and they are based in the power of the righteous right hand of God. The right hand was righteous. The left hand was a problem. If you were left-handed, you were considered morally unscrupulous, willing to cross lines that shouldn't be crossed. You were looked down on in society, not held in very high regard. Ehud was bound up in his right hand, so he used his left. Ehud was weak where he was supposed to be strong. He didn't fit the mold. He was on the wrong side of the stereotypes, and those stereotypes weren't limited to his hands, for they started with his birth. You see, Ehud was from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, back in the days of Joseph in Egypt, Benjamin sounded like a pretty good dude, you know, spoiled a bit maybe, but not a bad guy all around. By the time we get to this book, though, the book of Judges, the tribe of Benjamin, the group of people that came from the youngest brother, is a total wreck. 
They are the black sheep of the family. They have not been doing what God wants them to do, and so they've been real good at doing what God doesn't want them to do. Now, in many ways, this is true of every tribe, and let's be honest, every person back then and today. But at least some of the other tribes gave it a shot. The other tribes initially pushed the enemies of God from their lands when he told them to. The tribe of Benjamin didn't even try. They just let the other peoples hang out. They are seen as the weakest, most corrupt group by the other tribes. They are looked down on. They are mocked. The expectations of a person from the tribe of Benjamin are real low. So where does that leave Ehud? A Benjaminite and a left-handed man, scoffed at by society twice, considered a failure before he even had a chance to try. And then you contrast all of that with what came before him. You see, Ehud is only the second judge in Israel's history. The first judge was Othniel. Othniel was from the tribe of Judah, the mighty tribe, the tribe of promise, He was a moral and upright man. He had the right bloodlines. He was the younger brother of Caleb, one of the celebrated spies who trusted in the Lord and was considered a hero amongst the people of Israel. This guy was the standard. And so when Israel was in a time of trouble, nobody was surprised when it was Othniel who was raised up and led the armies of Israel into war against their oppressors. And delivered the victory. He was the ideal. He was the one that people expected. And for 40 years after his victory, there was peace in the land of Israel. There was peace until Othniel died. And the people of Israel forgot their God. They worshipped the gods of the people around them. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And God gave them over to the power of of King Moab. The king of Moab, Eglon. And Eglon rallied the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, and he attacked Israel and took possession of their biggest city. And the people of Israel were subject to Eglon for 18 years. And it was rough. Like, it wasn't good for the people of Israel. And so in their time of trouble, they remembered their God and the God of their fathers, Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. They remembered the one who had delivered them from Egypt and who had raised up Othniel, and they called out to God for help. And though they had betrayed him, though they had hurt him, though they had treated him poorly and abused their relationship with him, God heard their cries. He had mercy on them and he raised them up a leader, Ehud, a left-handed man from the tribe of Benjamin. They would have been hard-pressed to find a less qualified candidate. They were expecting Othniel. They were expecting the right bloodlines and the desired giftings and instead What they got was Ehud. Sometimes, sometimes I wonder how Ehud felt. I can imagine that he himself wondered why he was selected. He's incredibly familiar with the failings of his people. He knows the stigma attached to his left hand. He knows his weaknesses, his limitations, and yet despite them all, he has been called. He has been chosen God is going to use him to do some mighty things, and it doesn't matter what the stereotype is. It doesn't matter what the expectations of those around him are. What matters is that God has called him into action. God has chosen him. And what an encouragement that is for us. Do you sometimes wonder if you fit into the family of God? If you fit into the mission, into the plan of God? 
We each know that we're not perfect. We know that there isn't anything immoral about being left-handed. But we also know that you don't have to be left-handed to struggle with immorality. Each of us is a sinner, and we, we know that. None of us is worthy of God's call. None of us is worthy of God's forgiveness. None of us is worthy of being used in God's mission, much less being considered a champion of the faith. And we may not be from the tribe of Benjamin, but we know where we've been. We know what's in our past. We know the decisions that we've made. We know that we haven't resisted temptation like God has told us to. We know that instead of fleeing, we flirted. It takes a lot of energy to run from all that temptation. Isn't it just better to live alongside it? It's easier at least, right? Yeah, it's, it's easier. But it makes it harder to resist, and, and soon we're doing things we never thought we would. We're breaking promises to ourselves and to God that we never thought we'd break. We're hurting God, and we're hurting those around us, and those that trust us, those that rely upon us, those that love us. And with that comes the shame and the guilt. Oh, the many ways that we have failed. It's tempting to look around at the people who have appeared to have remained faithful. It's tempting to look to those that we consider Othniels, those that God has obviously gifted, those that don't seem to struggle in the ways that we do, those that are so good at what they do and so good at resisting temptation. Our Othniel is going to be different for each of us. For me, it's the pastors that are gifted in the ways that I'm not, or more gifted than I am in the areas that I'm strong. And I worry and I'm insecure that I'm leading you poorly, that someone else should be here to do a better job. I don't know who your Othniel is, but it's the person that you perceive to be better at doing what you have been given to do whether that's leading a Bible study, singing, playing an instrument, teaching, working at your job, being a student, being an athlete, being a parent, being a son or daughter, being a spouse, being a friend. There are so many areas that we can feel like it would be better if someone else just did the things that I have been given to do. They're better at them than I am. There are so many opportunities in life where this is true, and so we can relate to Ehud. And as we put ourselves in Ehud's shoes, let us remember that God chose him. That his limitations didn't stop God from choosing him. That his background, his personal failings and the failings of his people didn't stop God from choosing him. That those that came before him, those that set the standard, the standard whose expectations he couldn't live up to, didn't stop God from choosing him. And so it is for us. God has chosen you. Despite the sin in your life and the shame of your past, God loves you. Though you fall short of the expectations of those around you and the expectations that you hold for yourself, God will not stop loving you. He loves you so much that he sent his son, Jesus, to earth to live amongst us, the broken, the betrayers, the ones who could not keep our end of the bargain and who broke the world through our sin. God sent Jesus to live among us, to teach us, to, to guide us, to tell us more about God and his love for us. In Jesus Christ, God himself came down and lived among us. He ate with us, and he talked with us. He suffered with us. He felt joy with us. He laughed with us. He was thirsty with us. He experienced loss with us. 
But where we fail, where we sin, Jesus never gave in to the temptations of the flesh. He never once fell short of God's commands. Jesus was and is perfect. Where we continually stumble and fall into sin, Jesus never lost his balance. He never once was tripped up by the temptations of the world, and we hated him for it. He showed us our flaws and magnified our weaknesses, and so we condemned him to death. And not just any death, but one reserved for the worst of criminals, death on a cross. Though he was innocent, Jesus took the cross and walked the long road to Calvary. But upon his shoulders rested not just the weight of lumber, but the weight of the sins of the world. Every sin that had ever been committed is being committed and will be committed was put on Christ. And as he was nailed to that cross and as he hung there on display for the world to see, Jesus became sin for us. He took our sin upon himself. And there on the cross, the perfect one, the only one who had not earned death, for he was sinless, died for the sins of the world. There on the cross, Jesus paid the price for every time you and I have fallen, have failed, have struggled and given in. Jesus died for us and in our place to pay a debt that we could not. But he did not stay dead. For three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And when we believe in him, when we trust in him, the promises that we have in Christ are ours. Through faith, the faith that God gives us, we live in the beautiful promise of God's forgiveness. Through faith, the filthy rags of our sin have been taken from us and we have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. When we believe that he is who he says he is and that he did what he said he did and that he will do what he says he will do, then we are brought into the family of God and our hope in his promises is secure. God has chosen you. He wants you to be part of his family. He desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus didn't die just for those that would believe in him. He died for all. That all, that everyone, that you might have faith in him and receive the promises of God, the promises that we have in Christ. You may feel like you don't belong. You may feel unqualified. You may feel like your past and even your present is just too much to overcome. Join the club. None of us deserve the gifts, the mercy, and grace that we are given in Jesus Christ. But God has given it to us anyway. He has chosen us anyway. All we need do is believe, is accept the gift that he is giving. And man, is that exciting. That is awesome. It gives us hope for the future, hope for today, and expectation for tomorrow. I wonder if Ehud felt that hope. I wonder if the joy of being chosen by God, the validation of being handpicked by the living God, spurred him on to the mission that he was called to and the crazy plan that he put into action. He may not have been the choice that the people of Israel would have made, but he was God's choice, and so he set to work. He crafted for himself a special sword. Now, remember, the right hand is the hand of the warrior. And since Ehud's was messed up, no one would have expected him to wield a weapon. But Ehud crafted a double-edged blade that he made just the right size so he could hide it along his right thigh so that it would be easily drawn with his left hand. 
And then he went to bring the tribute from the people of Israel to the king of Moab, to Eglon in his palace. Now the people of Israel were farmers and shepherds. They would not have been able to give a tribute in metal or gold, but in food, in meat, and produce, which was right up King Eglon's alley because this dude was fat. Like we're talking orca fat. So fat that he had a special room crafted for himself on the top of the palace that was cooler, was, was more comfortable. So he had all the amenities that he would need up in this room. He could lock people out of it for privacy. It had windows that he could open to let the breeze through. It even had a bathroom built in. And so Ehud and the, the porters that were also sent from Israel, the ones carrying the tribute, they bring this food before Eglon. And this dude is happy. He accepts Israel's tribute and, and sends Ehud and his men back on their way home. As they are making their way back, Ehud puts the second half of his plan into action. He sent the porters on home, and he turns around and heads back to the palace. The guards recognize the strange left-handed emissary from a conquered people and let him back in. He presents himself once more to Eglon in his upper room. The tubby king is excited. Had some extra morsels been forgotten? Was there more to the tribute? I have a secret message for you. Your majesty, says the emissary from Israel. Eglon is intrigued. What could this message be? So he sends all of his servants out, leaving himself alone with Ehud. I have a message from God for you, Ehud proclaims. Eglon begins to rise from his seat, and Ehud draws the sword from his hidden sheath and plunges the blade into the fat man's belly. What a picture. And while there's a certain, yeah, man, about this scene, it's also pretty gross. You see, Eglon was, was so large, so incredibly rotund, that the Bible tells us that his fat ate the blade. Like, it sunk all the way in. And that's pretty disgusting, but it's not done there. You see... In the shock of getting stabbed, Eglon's body does what bodies sometimes do in death. His bowels discharged. He took a big old dump on his throne. Not something I was ever really sure I would say from the pulpit, but I don't regret it. And so Ehud leaves Eglon in his filth. He locks the door and he sneaks out, returning to the people of Israel while the people of Moab have no idea that their king has been slain. The attendants wait an appropriate amount of time and then return to the king's special room to find it locked. They continue to wait. What could be taking so long? What was this private, this secret message that had been given to their king? Soon the smells from inside reach the attendants at the door who have been getting nervous, and they decide that their illustrious king must be using the bathroom that he has installed in his upper room. And so they give him a longer time that he might deal with that particular need in private. After this wait reaches an awkwardly long amount of time, they begin to call out to the king and no answer. Their confusion and worry grow. And so knowing that they risk the king's wrath, they can wait no longer and they break down the door to find the king, Eglong, dead upon his throne, sitting in his own feces. 
Ehud has used this time of confusion on the part of Eglon's people to make a clean getaway. He rushes back to the people of Israel and he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim and the Israelite armies came to him. Follow me, Ehud calls, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. And the armies of Israel follow Ehud, the left-handed man, the one no one believed could be a true soldier due to his limitations. They follow this man into battle and they rout the armies of Moab And the land of Israel had peace for 80 years. There may be somewhat obvious reasons that as a young man I loved this story of Ehud. As an adult, there is much more, or who is much more familiar with my personal failings. More willing to admit to my flaws. And more able to see my limitations, my struggles, and my lack of qualifications This story takes on a whole new life for me. God chooses the overlooked, and he uses the ill-equipped. There is hope for those that just don't feel like they fit in. Daniel Rudiger may not have fit in. He may have been too small to play football, but he worked hard. Got himself onto the scout team, It wasn't what he dreamed of, it wasn't exactly what he had hoped for, but it was pretty awesome. His final year of football eligibility, the former coach for the Green Bay Packers, Dan Devine, was named head coach of the Notre Dame football team. Daniel had worked hard, he was on the scout team, but he had not seen any game time action. In the final game of his final year, coach Dan Devine put Daniel Rudiger in the lineup. And on the final play, he put Daniel in to play defensive end. In the single play of his college football career, Daniel Rudiger sacked the opposing quarterback and ended the game. His teammates surrounded him, and he became the first player to ever be carried off the Notre Dame field as his teammates shouted his nickname, Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. Some of us may be familiar with the movie aptly titled Rudy that was made based off Daniel Rudiger's story. It's hard for me to watch that movie without crying. I don't think I make it through very often without tears. I love that movie. Now, I'm not trying to ruin that particular film for anyone, but there is a scene that has become classic where Dan Devine, the coach, is kind of seen as the villain, the one who is keeping Rudy from playing, doesn't want to see the small, undersized, super old kid hit the field. And then, before the final game, the star player enters the coach's office with his jersey in hand and says, Rudy can have my spot on the team. I'm not playing if Rudy isn't playing. And then as the player leaves the office, you see that the entire team has lined up outside the coach's door, jerseys in hand, to make the same statement. If Rudy doesn't play, they don't play. Now, that's a fantastic moment in the movie. The problem is it didn't actually happen. And while that may ruin some of the emotional charge of that movie for us, I hope it makes the point of the message today hit a little harder. It wasn't Rudy's peers that got him into the game. It was his coach. Dan Devine chose to put Rudy in that game, not because of the pressures of those around him, but because it was what he wanted to do. Because he loved this member of his football team. 
Church, the opinions of those around you, whether they are for good or for bad, do not affect God's intentions towards you. God does not need your Othniel to come and lay their jersey on the desk before he decides to put you in the game. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. He cares about you. He longs to give you the blessings found in forgiveness. He longs to partner with you in his mission to bring about his kingdom, regardless of how you may feel about your qualifications. Church, you are undersized. Some of you may be a little old. Some of us are a little inexperienced. And all of us are incredibly broken. But church, God wants you on his team. And he wants to put you in the game. This is the God we serve. This is the hope of the world. What a fantastic, loving, gracious, merciful, and intentional God we serve. Amen.